0: This is the only one who's played who hasn't. Well, check her off the list. Big Cat adds a three. There's a steal. Days able to poke it away from Brockington. And Days coming with some smoke now. Yeah. Jacobs, speaking of tough shots. She's, she's attempting staff to put their fingerprints on this team. What a difference in how they are playing from a year ago. What a play, Eason. Oh, full extension. It's a five-point game. Kane was open. Four on the shot clock for Ryan. Goes with the right hand. Makes it just like she planned it. Ryan. Again. All day long. What she to do? Jones. Yeah including last year at LSU. Can he find the right buttons to push? Hunter! My goodness! This is Hunter. It's been his night. Fires. Splash! And the crowd is ready to celebrate. They stayed up late. They earned this one. And so too did the Cyclones. 78-71. Iowa State moving on. Iowa State with the stop and the Cyclones are dancing into the round of 32. Cyclone! Yeah. You know it! Cyclone! Power. Cyclone! Power. Cyclone! Alright, now let's really test your faith! Jesus! All right, we'll work on that by the end of the sermon. Man, I tell you what, I was so excited watching basketball this weekend. I was going nuts. Uh, In fact, I asked my wife to get some pictures of me while I was watching the game, and this is about what I looked like. Um, Can anybody else relate? Were those not some of the most terrifying and yet exhilarating moments of your life. It put a whole new meaning on the reading for today. Uh, As we looked at it, it's in Romans chapter 8, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. I tell you what, sometimes we're suffering and yet God promises glory for us to come. Now, of course, sometimes the suffering that we endure is a lot more serious than the difficulties of watching our favorite team play basketball. Sometimes it's a lot harder than that, isn't it? This is a painting that I think some, or excuse me, a drawing that I think sometimes reflects how we're feeling. This is a uh, famous drawing by Vincent van Gogh. And next to it, I put Romans 8, chapter 26, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 26. It says, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. When you're hurting and when you're suffering, sometimes we don't even know what to pray for, much less what to say to people. Somebody asks you, what are you going through? And you can't quite express it. You want to talk to God about it, but you can't quite put it into words. Have you ever had a moment like that? Vincent van Gogh is an an artist that we know of today as one of the greatest artists of all time, and yet his life was full of sadness and tragedy and depression. What you might not know about Vincent van Gogh is he didn't know fame during his life. He sold one painting his entire life. It wasn't until after he died that people found out that he was really talented. So oftentimes he would either paint, and then in this case draw, the people that he was around. In this case, he drew a man who's sitting in a chair, and he has no words. And you can just kind of feel what he's feeling, can't you? Like, do you know what that feels like? I don't know if there's any topic in the world that makes me feel so small as suffering does. Suffering hurts. And I know as Christians, we get to look forward to glory. God promises that. But in the moment, the suffering hurts. It's pain. It's agony. Interestingly, Vincent Van Gogh, what you also might not know about him, is when he started off as a professional, as a young man, he started off in the church. He had a lot of troubles throughout his life, and he was a complicated person. People have done their best to try to diagnose him in the past, and what might have been going on in his mind that led to some of the tragedies in his life. But he was a person who turned to faith, and he could express it through some of his art. In this painting, he called At Eternity's Gate, And I think that that's really powerful. Sometimes when we're sitting in front of the creator of the universe and we're just empty with words, empty of words, we feel like we're sitting in a seat and we've got nothing to say. Sometimes even in our prayers, we don't know what to say. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to have nothing to say to God? Like I said, suffering is one of those topics. I mean, it just makes me feel small. Suffering is something that makes us groan. In the reading today, Romans chapter 8, verse 22, it says, All creation has been growing as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The author is not mincing words here. The author here is the Apostle Paul, and the author, Paul, is writing to the church in Rome. Now, this is a church that, Rome, that Paul actually never visited, at least at this point. It says beginning of the, the book and the end of the book that he hadn't visited them yet. But what we do know is that they were suffering. They were hurting. And he's trying to encourage them. And he's saying, listen, this has been a part of our experience. This has been a part of our existence. We groan. And there's something special about this word groan. It's not just like, a, oh, man, that hurts. Specifically in the biblical Greek this word groan it quite literally means to cry in the face of death to be so faced with tra- with tragedy that you cannot help but weep to be without words And this is not the way that creation was supposed to be. It says all creation has been groaning groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And then Paul gets pretty convicting. It says this in the verse before it. It says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. What does that mean? It means that once upon a time, God made the world. God made everything, and it was, what does God say in the book of Genesis? You Bible scholars, he says, it was good. He says it over and over again. At the very end, he says that it's very good. It's very, very good. Creation is good. Now, when we say good, sometimes we just mean, well, it's enough, it passes. When God says good, he means it's complete. It is perfected. Now, in a loving relationship that God has with us, he gives us that free will, and we have the opportunity to forget him, to ignore the good things that he's done for us, and instead rebel, to fall short, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about sin. And we end up in suffering, and Paul is naming that right here. He is saying creation, the rocks, the trees, the birds, the flowers, the seas, they don't sin, but they're a part of creation, and they're subjected because of the mistakes of humanity. Like these other parts of creation, they don't sin, they don't cause the suffering, but they're victims of it. And it's the truth with some of us, too. I mean, all of us, right? I mean, yes, there are some suffering experiences that we have because of the things that we do, but the truth is a lot of the suffering that we experience was out of our control, wasn't it? And so we start with creation that's very, very good, but then there's suffering, there's pain, and there's agony. You fill in the blanks. There's pain and there's agony, but God does promise. It says, with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when we get to join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. God is saying it doesn't stop with the suffering. It started with creation. It is good. There is suffering. There's pain and there's agony. But God promises to bring glory. And when God creates, what do we know? God finishes and he says, it is what church? He says that it's good. We're going to get back here. But the question is, how do we get from creation to suffering to glory? How do we get back to glory? How do we get back to that place? Sometimes we respond to suffering in unhealthy ways, don't we? Here are three ways that we respond to uh, suffering that aren't good. First off, there's, there's avoidance. There's, I'm going to pretend like my suffering isn't there. I'm going to pretend like I never actually end up in this seat. Now, when Paul was writing to the Romans once upon a time, he was writing to people who were surrounded by a lot of different ancient beliefs. One of the most popular ancient beliefs would have said that you don't actually get to be sad about the pain in the world because we're all one, and if you die, really, it's just re-entering the circle of life. And I think that maybe they stole that idea from Lion King. I don't know. (laughs) If you've seen the movie. But we avoid it, and that's unfulfilling, isn't it? Then there's also Stoicism, which is something that the Romans and the Greeks would have taught. They would have said, no, suffering is just an opportunity for you to stand your ground. For you to show how strong you are, you be stoic about it. You don't express pain. You're not pretending that the suffering and the pain isn't real, but it doesn't impact you. And then another way that oftentimes we respond to suffering, and also the people of Paul's day were responding to suffering, is we just go for the quick answers, right? The quick answers. Oh, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Or, you know, you got what was coming for you. It's kind of this karma-based belief system, Right? And it's like really neat and it's really tidy. Well, I mean, my goodness, if everything that you put out comes back to you, I mean, that's really simple. Then the pain and the suffering in this world, it's just. But of course, we know that it's not, is it? This is why Christianity, I mean, the start of the Christian church, was so shocking to people. This is the biblical approach to suffering. We believers groan. Along with the rest of creation, we groan, we get real about it, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. Historians will say about the early Christian church, it was a breath of fresh air, but sometimes in ways that you might not expect. There's the parts of the Christian church that were being preached that people loved and talked about and like, okay, of course, that's the good news, right? Like Jesus gives us life forever. But another breath of fresh air that the Christian church brought into the ancient uh, Roman and Jewish culture, do you know what it was? It was, your suffering is real, and you're allowed to express pain. You're allowed to express agony. You are allowed to sit in this seat and say, I have nothing to say. You're allowed to be real about the suffering in the world. You don't have to pretend like it's not there. I think that it is so tempting for us in these days to just ignore our pain to ignore the suffering. And in some ways, it's because we don't want to come face-to-face with it. We don't want to experience the pain that we have to experience in order to admit that there is pain. But in other ways, I think sometimes we're just tired of it, aren't we? In the last couple of years, there have been a lot of things that have shown up in the world that are expressions of suffering. Some of them have made us pretty uncomfortable, haven't they? And I have noticed that in some situations, it is tempting for the people who aren't suffering to say to the people who are suffering, Would you just be quiet about that? Haven't we talked about that enough? I mean, my goodness, haven't we talked about the pandemic enough? Haven't we talked about racism enough? I mean, haven't we talked about oppression enough? I mean, my goodness. You're falling into an unhealthy response to suffering. The biblical response to suffering is not avoidance, it is not stoicism. And it is not pad answers. It is being real about it. It is when we see somebody sitting in this seat, we always, always see that there's a seat right next to them. And do you know whose seat this belongs to? This belongs to you. As pastors, we have to take this class. It's called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education. Um, In clinical pastoral education, essentially what it is, it kind of teaches you the foundations of being a chaplain. So when you go into a hospital or when you go into care situations, you at least have some idea, hopefully, of what you can do. My CPE instructor said, always find the empty seat in a room. If there's a seat in the room, you sit in it. You show people you don't rush. There's not too much going on in your life that you can't join them in their pain. Doesn't mean that you have to wear it. Doesn't mean you have to take it out of that room with you. But you join them in their pain when they're with you. You don't tell them to be quiet. You don't tell them to avoid it. You don't tell them to be stoic. You don't give them pat answers. You just join them. Because sometimes you're not going to know what to pray either. You're not going to know what to say. But do you know what you can do? You can sit with them. And so you know this. If I visited you in the hospital, if there is a seat in the room, I will take it. And look, I'm not a perfect pastor, I'm not a perfect care minister, but that's one thing that I've been taught and one thing that I will always hold on to. When I was a kid, I remember I'd go on hospital visits with my dad. He's a pastor, you might know of him, he's a cool guy. (laughs) But I'd go on hospital visits with him and it just always blew me away. I knew he was a busy guy, but we would spend hours in the hospitals. Hours in the hospitals. And I was probably four or five years old. These are some of my first memories. And some of my first memories are seeing someone that I love and appreciate and respect sitting in the seat next to people and just listening. Because there are people who are sitting in that seat of suffering right now, and they don't even know what's coming their way, do they? Like, they, they don't know what's on the other side of that door. Put yourself, like, in the hospital room type situation. The door is closed and you're waiting. And on the other side of that door, there's some sort of news and you don't know what that news is, but how much more comforting is it if someone's with you? As followers of Jesus, as people who listen to the Word of God that He provides to us in the Bible, we sit in the seat next to people and we tell them whatever is on the other side of that door, whenever it opens, I'm here with you. That's what we're called to do as Christians. Yes. There is pain. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is agony. But there is glory coming. We don't just do this because it makes us look good. We do this because of the God that we worship. Jesus tells us no servant is greater than his master. And Jesus says, I am setting the example for you. In the book of Romans, it says that there is groaning like childbirth, right? And it's in the face of death, and I know that today we, try to, we might modernize that and think, that okay, well, childbirth, face of death. What? In those days, I mean, anybody who was facing childbirth was potentially facing death. Like, it was a lot scarier back then in a lot of ways. And yet, in the face of death, there's the opportunity to birth new life. And so it is with Christ. How does Christ get us from suffering to glory again? Well, he does it in the face of death. The truth is, is that as Christians living in the 21st century, or any Christian who lives after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have the privilege to look at this world through the lens of the cross. We don't just sit here thinking that there's no way to go. We don't just have empty hope thinking maybe someday, I don't know. We actually have hope. It's something to obtain. It's something to have. It's something to possess. We have hope, and it is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are not just living in here alone. You have your seat, you have your place, but you have a God who is joined with you in it. And he's not going anywhere. And so today we can know this. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's agony. But we're living right here. There is victory on the way. There is victory that's come. Seminary professors will always call it the already not yet. There is already glory that's been won for you. And we're not yet realizing the fullness of it. Sometimes it's described as the difference between D-Day and V-E-Day. For those of you who uh, maybe not be familiar with that, D-Day was the day when essentially World War II, the outcome was decided. V-E-Day is when it was officially over. So there's D-Day when we know who's going to win the war. We know that evil is lost, and yet it continues to lurk through V-E-Day. And so it is today. Jesus has won the victory. And evil still lurks, and it's still there, and we're still suffering and we still experience pain and we still have agony, but we know that glory is coming and one day we will fully realize it. And we know with absolute certainty that Jesus promises not to leave us in this place until he takes us all the way into glory, all the way back into good. Now, these are kind of like philosophical, you know, big idea type things, and that's kind of fun to talk about. But as I was preparing for the sermon, I was like, this has to be practical, Right? Like this has to be practical. It can't just be like up in the air. So I want to be very, very practical, but how do we live in this place right now? Because already, yes, there's glory coming our way. But not yet, we're not experiencing the fullness of it, are we? Already, but but not yet. How do we live here? Again, let's turn to our biblical responses to suffering. The first thing that we get to do, and this says in Romans chapter 8, this is where we get our, our cue from this, is, is we pray to the Father. And if you've been coming to church for a while, that doesn't sound very fancy to you. That doesn't sound very uh, groundbreaking to you. But put yourself in the shoes of someone who listened and learned from Jesus or someone who was reading this letter from Paul a long time ago. People did not call God Father. They did not think of God as a parent. They thought of God as an authoritative, all-powerful, all-knowing, incredible figure. Yes, real. Yes, present. Yes, would show up. Yes, would move the mountains. Yes, would part the Red Sea. Yes, would raise the dead to life. But not in such an intimate way. And yet, here comes Jesus. Jesus, every single time in the New Testament, except once, refers to God as Father. And that was downright offensive. God is too good to be that close with humanity. God doesn't act like that. God doesn't vulnerable like that. God doesn't love like that. It's not that kind of sweetness. It's not that kind of closeness. And yet, Paul in the book of Romans is putting our child of God identity so close with suffering. And why is that? It says in Romans chapter 8, verse uh, it's not in verse 22, it's it's a little bit before that. I apologize, I got the verse wrong there. But it says, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children, and now we call him Abba Father. Go ahead and turn to the person next to you and say, Abba. Now, what does Abba mean? Abba is a word that, yes, it means father, it means dad, but it's, it's even sweeter than that. Abba is a unique word in that there's really no formal history to it. Instead, it's just something that infants would, not infants, but toddlers would utter sometimes as their first word, in the same way that toddlers sometimes will utter as their first word today, dada. And so you imagine Jesus in in the prime of his ministry, 30 to 33 years old, and he's going around saying, dada. And now you understand why people thought Jesus was so weird. (laughs) Like, yes, he's God, and yes, he's amazing, and yes, he's powerful. But he's so wrapped up in his identity as the Son of God. Do you approach God like he's your? This is going to feel awkward for me to even say, "Dada." <laughs> like do, we should be that close with God that it actually is kind of uncomfortable that we're so close from the outside looking in. Like, how does a child approach their father? Is there any shame? No. In fact, when the child is more audacious, when the child is crazier, when the child is louder, when the child is freaking out even more, it only draws the attention's father to that child even more. I don't, I don't have kids, but I, I imagine, and I kind of remember some memories from when I was a child, but, but I imagine if your child is screaming in the middle of the night, you don't wonder to yourself, mm, okay, well, how did they behave today? You, you run to the child. Because you're their, you're their parent. Because you have that kind of closeness with them. You're not caught up in evaluating them, you're caught up in loving them. And so when we're suffering, we approach God like He is our daddy. Our daddy. I never called my parents mommy or daddy, so I still feel weird saying it to you right now. He's that close with us. I think a lot of us, we don't see God as a father. And frankly, a lot of us don't want to see God as a father because maybe you had a bad father. The Bible compares God to both a father and a mother throughout. There are stories when Jesus talks about his father as dada, but he describes him in a motherly type way. What is he saying? He's saying, my father's not like yours. No matter how good your earthly father is, my father's not like yours. My father's perfect. And he's always close with you. And he never makes mistakes. Some of us see God more as a boss, don't we? And if we see God as a boss, it's really going to deeply impact the way that we handle suffering, isn't it? If we see God as a boss, we're going to believe that the suffering is a result of what we've done. This is God's evaluation on my life. And either I'm getting fired or I'm getting punished. God's not your boss. God is your Abba. He is your close father. He loves you. And your suffering and your pain only draws him closer to you. So the first thing that we can do is we can pray to the Father, and really, really, when you're talking to God, I mean your Father, your Daddy. You pray to Him like that. You pray to Him like Jesus prayed to Him. The second thing that we can do is we rest in God as King. God's our Father, but God's also King of the universe, and that comes with some sort of security, doesn't it? In a verse that's very famous, that's right after today's passage, it says, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. This is one of the most popular verses in the entire Bible. It's oftentimes recited and said um, in all sorts of different occasions. But let's pay really close attention to what it says. It says, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. Right? Okay, everything. God works in everything. That means the good and the bad. Now, a lot of Christians, sometimes we realize that there are good and bad things in the world, but we don't believe that the bad things can happen to us. I'm not saying they will happen to us, but it is that they can happen to us. And that's really uncomfortable. That's not fun at all. By the end of this passage in Romans chapter 8, it's going to say that there is nothing in heaven or hell, angels or demons, nothing in life or death that can separate us from the power of God's love. There's nothing that can separate us, that's scary or good, whatever it might be, that can separate us from the power of God's love. And what it's saying is, those things might come your way. See, as Christians, we don't avoid the suffering. We don't pretend like it's not real. We don't put on the pad answers, but instead we rest knowing that God is king. And even in the bad things, he doesn't just simply make them evaporate and say, ha, 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 see, they're gone. They're not really that big of a deal. No, but he's always working in them. I think that sometimes we take a verse like this and we think, ah, okay, well, I'm going to just see every missed opportunity as a blessing. Or I'm just going to start telling people every single cloud has its silver lining. Just see the blessing in every single situation. I overslept and I missed that job interview, but when I overslept, I went to a cafe to lament over it, and my server came over and they were pretty cute and now we're married. Oh, wasn't it such a great blessing? Like sometimes we want it to work that fast, and I wonder if God's like, hey, slow down, I'm still working on it. We have to understand, God is working in everything. Everything. That means the things that are happening in our life, in the things that happen after our life. That means that I might die without seeing the good that came out of some of the bad in my life. But I can rest knowing that none of it was wasted. Just yesterday, it happened to me again. I was driving to one of our friend's weddings, Abby was coming from Ames. I had a thing in Des Moines. We were kind of meeting there. Abby being, you know, the mature, amazing adult that she is. She shows up, you know, 20 minutes early. And there I am. I'm going to show up 20 minutes early. And I drive past the exit. I don't know. I'm just thinking about today's sermon. But of course, I've got Siri right there. And as I'm freaking out, oh no! I'm going to be late to my friend's wedding! Siri's like, reroute. (laughs) Like, I get it, like it's a simple way, and I get it, like life is not that simple, but but it's a good illustration, isn't it? Like, God is less intimidated by our misdirections than Siri is by our missed exits. Like God is better than Siri. We like we can acknowledge that, right? Siri was made by a human. God made humans. Did God make Siri? God is better than Siri, and Siri's pretty good. My wife Siri is an Australian man so that kind of intimidates me but <laughs> it's been like that since before we dated so I, <laughs> you know We could take all these different wrong turns I mean, in the pain and the agony but God's not intimidated by it he can always get us to back he can always get us back to him He's working in everything and you might not see the glory even by the end of your life but you can know that everything will lead to glory You rest in God as your king you know that he's king of the universe. You know that he works in everything. The, the third thing that we can do is we can, this sounds funny, but we can calculate the glory. Um, in our translation that we read from today in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, it, and in a lot of translations, it, it takes out the first three words. It says, yet I reckon. Now, in today's passage, we just read, yet what we suffer now. But Paul, when he writes it, he actually said, yet I reckon what we suffer now. And I think what they're trying to do is they're just trying to make sure that we know that Paul's not a Texan uh, because the Longhorns are evil and they've abandoned us and, you know... Um, bitterness is just a poisonous thing so we should let that go but but Reckon in in, in his day it was was like a mathematical scientific like calculation like he's actually adding it up I see the bad I see the good and yet sometimes the bad outweighs the good but nothing outweighs the glory of God yet I reckon what we suffer now is nothing it doesn't even come close it does not compare to the glory that will reveal to us later What's the most beautiful sight you've ever seen in your life? Now, let me ask you this. The most beautiful thing that you've ever seen in your life, was it easy to get to? Probably not. Because the most beautiful things in this world aren't touched with roads yet. We we can't get to them so easily. My wife and I, when we go on trips, we like to go to a place that will have mountains so we can hike. We love to hike. I I proposed to her on a hike, and she said, go take a hike. (laughs) Sorry. I didn't run that one by you. I'm sorry. (laughs) I usually do. She's she's abundantly patient. But we like to hike because we like to see these sites. Now, a lot of the hikes that we go on, like, you know, if you go to, like, Colorado, some of these hikes, like, it's basically dirt passes, zigzag up a mountain. And so we were in Arizona last week. Uh, She's a teacher. She was on spring break. So so we went down to Arizona and and we, we were near some mountains. And so we went to Finger Rock Trail. And as I'm doing the research, I'm like, okay, I mean, come on, we've hiked before, we can handle this. Oh my goodness. Like, I've thought like, oh, I don't know, this could end poorly, but this past week was the first time I thought, I might die. My life might be over. This wasn't a dirt path. These were rocks. We were climbing the mountain. We weren't hiking the mountain. I mean, we had we, like, I, it is crazy. We didn't have bungee cords and, and, and chisels to, to get all the way up. And like there was a certain point where we just stopped like, we're not going to make it down. We better call for a helicopter. We're scared. At one point, there's this one older guy who's coming down, and he's got, you know, those walking sticks with him, and you can tell he's a professional. He's like, yeah, I just hiked up to Mile Tree. I planted some tools. We're going to go back up there, and we're, we're going to make some stuff a, a couple of days later. I said, oh, so you've been on this trail before? He said, yeah, actually, it can be pretty scary. We're like, no, really? <laughs> he told us, yeah, one time I got lost out here at night, and the woman who I was hiking with fell and broke her leg, and we had to get a helicopter to come save her. I'm like, oh, great! And so we have this fear. We're inches away from falling to a painful death. And yet, still, the view. I, like, oh. And then I looked at my wife and I'm like, no, that's the view. <laughs> I had to tell a joke because I I get emotional when I see God's creation untouched. Because I think about how God intended for me to live and intended for me to exist. And he did not make me for pain and agony. He joins me in the pain and agony, but he made me good. He made you good. Pain and agony might have touched you, but he will not leave you there. He will bring you to glory. And you may not see it now. You may not see it next week. You may not see it next year. You may not see it before you leave this world. But he will not leave you in pain and agony. He made you good. He made you for glory. And you will be good. Not because of anything you do, but because of what God calls you and what God made you to be. And because he will not leave you. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, just before a passage today, this is the message, uh, paraphrase translation of the chapter. It says, we go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. I've said this before, but I think that it's worth saying again. If Jesus is going to be honest with us about the hard things in life, and he's honest about the hard things, in the book of John, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world, he tells us. If he's going to be honest about the hard things, don't you think he's going to be honest about the difficult things? And if he's going to join you in the hard times, don't you think he's going to bring... Why would he take time to join us in the hard times if he's not going to bring us into glory? He will not leave you in the pain and the agony when we are sitting in that place and we have no words, the seat next to you is not empty. He has joined you in whatever is on the other side of that door. He will hear it with you. He will go through it with you. And the craziest thing of all of it is he will even save you through it. Doesn't mean he'll save you from it but he'll save you through it. God doesn't promise he's going to save us from the bad things in our life, but he does promise he will save us through the bad things. Just look at how Jesus saved the world. He saved it through the excruciating death of a crucifixion. Because he joins you in it. You know, he he knows what it's like to groan. He knows what it's like to face death with tears in his eyes. He knows what that kind of pain and agony feels like. But he's working, to bring the glory. he's working to bring the world to glory. Take a look at his miracles, several of the miracles, just before he, he cries. I mean, he's about to perform a miracle. Why does he cry? I mean, there's just a simple miracle that he performs where, where I mean, for him it's simple. I mean, he, he provides food for thousands of people, but before he says that he has compassion on them, which literally means his heart was breaking for them. They're just hungry. What's the, come on, what's the problem? What breaks the heart of God? What breaks the heart of God is anything that's been touched and is in pain and in agony and isn't good any, and doesn't feel like it's good anymore, at least. There's a story in Mark chapter 7 where Jesus is with a man who is deaf and mute. I mean, he's deaf and mute. And in those days, I mean, my goodness, today, people will say that the deaf community is one of the most neglected communities um, in our country. I mean, back then, I I imagine it would be even worse. And I wonder just how alone this man felt. Jesus heals him, but before he does, it says that he sighed. And the word for sighed, you might not be surprised, is the same word for groan. Interesting. Before he just heals this man's hearing, he's, he's acting as if he's facing death with tears in his eyes. Before Jesus performs a miracle, he cries. He groans. It's like he's facing death. What? Why? I mean, he's about, he knows what's going to happen. He knows he can heal this guy. He knows he's going to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, but he cries at the funeral. He knows he's going to be able to feed the people who have come and listened to him preach, and yet he, heartbreaks for, he has heartbreak for them. Why? He knows it's going to end up fine. Because Jesus does not ignore your suffering. He doesn't give you pat answers for your suffering. He's certainly not stoic in it. He's real about your suffering. He gives you dignity in your suffering. He says, this is real. And I am with you in it. And again, whatever's on the other side of that door, when it opens, I will be here. But Jesus has the best, the best solution to what's on the other side of the door. He's working in everything to turn it into something good. And so in this life, right now, maybe on the other side of that door is bad news, but someday it will be glory. It will be glory. Glory. So Jesus says confidently, Be opened. I just think it's so beautiful that when he says to this deaf man, I want you to hear and I want you to speak, he says, Be opened. And he's looking up to heaven. He's crying. He's sighing. He's groaning. And he says, Be opened. Come on, send down all the glory. Send down all the glory. I will not leave these people in pain and agony. I mean, what's the purpose of Jesus' miracles? The purpose of his miracles is not simply just to show that he's strong. If he did that, he'd go fly over the lake, you know, and and say, look at me, obey me. And i will say, whoa, Jesus, you can fly. His miracles, he feeds people. He opens the ears of the deaf. He opens the eyes of the blind. What does he do? He's not suspending reality. He's turning reality right side up and saying, this is the way that I've always intended it for it to be. Not for pain, not for agony, but for good. For the good of those who love me. I will never leave you in agony. I will never leave you in agony. You are my family, he says. You are my family. And he is so certain to call you family. He is so certain to call you family because he went to a place where in the rest of the New Testament, he never went there. All the New Testament, every single time, but once he calls God Father. But on the cross, do you know this line? He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Maybe you don't know, Jesus is quoting Psalm chapter 22. He's quoting scripture. So don't think that when Jesus is on the cross, he's lost hope. He's quoting scripture. He knows where this is going. But he also knows what he's experiencing. And he's not going to avoid it. He's not going to ignore it. He's not going to put pat answers on it. And he's not going to be stoic about it. He's going to express his pain. He's going to express his agony. And in Psalm chapter 22, just after it says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It says, why are you so far away when I groan for help? He went to a place none of us want to go, and he went to a place that none of us will ever have to go. You don't have to stay in your pain. You don't have to stay in your agony. It may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Lamentations chapter 3 says his mercies are new every single morning. And Romans chapter 8 tells us when you have nothing to pray, when you have nothing left to say, when all you can do is groan, you know this, the Holy Spirit groans with you. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And so when you are sitting in this seat and you have nothing to say, you can know something. God is not far away. God is actually so close because you're experiencing something in that moment that God experiences. In your heart, you are experiencing what God experiences. You are groaning. You are crying in the face of death in the same way that God cries in the face of death. And so when you have nothing to say, but all you have is just emptiness and sitting before God and just take something, give me something, anything, Lord. I don't have anything for you. The Holy Spirit joins you and intercesses for us and turns even that into a valuable prayer to your daddy who's always listening, who always runs to you, God is not absent in those moments. God is not absent your pain, your agony, or your suffering. He acknowledged it. He knows that it's real. He's experienced it. He's not far away. He's closer than your bones. Closer than the air that you breathe. The Spirit of God is in you when you are experiencing that. A father, a mother, a good parent runs to their child when they scream in the night. And they're groaning. Jesus says, If you sinful people would be good to your children, how much better would my perfect father be to all of his children? He will be so good to you. He will be so good to you. He will remind you of how good you are. And even when we're right here, in the already not yet, He promises us, I've made a way. You're going to get the glory. You're going to see the goodness. The pain and the agony, it won't last. These groans will be silenced. You will rejoice in the presence of your Father. Amen. Let's stand on up. Let's sing and praise our good Father.